Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to point you in the direction of a documentary just released called Better Left Unsaid, produced by my friend Desh Amala. The documentary is primarily about the evolution of the far left, and it features interviews with people like Noam Chomsky, Steven Pinker, Douglas Murray, and myself. Again, that's called Better Left Unsaid, and it's worth your time. All right, so today's guest is Ayla. Ayla is a difficult person to describe, as you'll see. She's a blogger, a sex worker, and the queen of interesting Twitter polls. We talk about her upbringing as a fundamentalist Christian. We talk about psychedelics, meditation, sex work, polyamory, sexual jealousy, the psychology of trauma, critical race theory, and identity politics. So without further ado, Ayla. Ayla, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. I've been a fan of your blog for probably a year and a half and a fan of your strange in the best way Twitter polls for about the same time. Some of my listeners may also follow you and, and know what I'm talking about, but if not, that's okay. We're, we're here. The purpose of this podcast is to sort of learn more about you and, and your story and how you came to think the way you think and, and be the sort of difficult to define person that you are. And we have a lot of mutual interest, I think, psychedelics and rationality and recently I've seen you tweeting often about race issues and critical race theory and white privilege notions like this, which we may get to, but I want to spend the first good chunk of this basically just interviewing you about your life story. So let's just go to the beginning. Where were you born and, and into what kind of family were you born? Yeah, I was actually born in California, um, despite mostly growing up in Idaho. Mm. And my family is very conservative. My dad is a professional evangelical Christian. Um, and I was born around the time he was starting up his ministry for the first time. So I see the transition of him quitting his job um, to go full time into ministry. And he used to go around like witnessing in person the people at state fairs and stuff. And so my mom's a stay at home housewife. Uh, because that's what women are supposed to do. And we were homeschooled um, my whole life. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the general <laughs> beginning summary of it. Yeah. Um, so what were you homeschooled in the evangelical Christian caste? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I had believed evolution was a lie and that the earth was around six or 7,000 years old and that, you know, America was founded on Jesus and all that stuff. 
yeah, it was, it was pretty isolating. So we were also isolated strongly from the outside world. Uh, so we weren't allowed to watch media that had any sort of secular influence, really. Um, and we watched mostly shows from the 50s and 60s growing up because that was the correct uh, representation of gender roles for us. Wow. Uh, we weren't allowed to watch media where children were upset with their parents um, because that was, we didn't want to condone that or like have that as an example. So just general stuff like that. So what was media in the 50s and 60s? Like I Love Lucy or is that even too Yeah. Modern? I Love Lucy, I Dream of Jeannie, Gilligan's Island, wow. um, Andy Griffith. Yeah, those are the things my mom grew up telling me or when I grew up, my mom would tell me about and they were just sort of black and white abstractions that I wasn't interested in. Yeah. So you were sort of raised in a, you know, in, in a community that was trying to replicate the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. in what the, the two thousands, I guess. Yeah. I was born yeah. in 1992. So. Okay. So to what extent at that age did you, have any kind of skepticism of what you, of your immediate surroundings and the beliefs that were inculcated in you or were you, did you just believe what you were told? I'm, I believed what I was told. Like I, I want to say that I was some sort of like great intellect, um, but I mostly accepted most of it. And there was a lot of doubt, like, because this was welcomed. I think I had an unusual experience in the sense that like my dad is extremely intellectual and he said, we don't believe Christianity because this is a cultural thing or because it feels good. We believe it because we have rationally arrived at the conclusion. And in order to rationally arrive at the conclusion, you have to have like free questioning. So if you have any doubts about Christianity, ask them. Mm. It's great to have doubts. It means that you're really understanding this for yourself. And we will answer them in such a way that you will, you know, this was implicit, like come to find out that this is actually the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I did have a lot of doubts and I was like really torn up about it. I remember being very confused why I didn't feel the presence of God. Um, I eventually did feel the presence of God, but for a long time I didn't. And I was very upset about it. Um, so that gave me a lot of doubts and stuff. But ultimately I, I did believe the doubts were felt a little bit performative. Mm. So when did you feel the presence of God and how? Yeah, I was 16 and I had started talking to a friend who had like a very different perspective on Christianity, although he was still very Christian. He, he had more of like sort of an emotional relationship with it. And he had been talking to me about that for a while. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And I went down and I, I like prayed, which in hindsight, I realized was some sort of deep meditation. Mm. Um, and in, in like this different kind of way, begging for the love of God or something. And then I remember experiencing it, like come over me and it was felt super powerful. And I sobbed and I felt like I'd experienced the love of, you know, Jesus Christ or whatever. Uh, which is pretty similar to some stuff that happens on psychedelics. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I want to get there as well. Um, I, I guess I, I think you have this blog post called the trauma narrative, which I, I want to talk about maybe after we talk about psychedelics though, which mm. will go back into your childhood and highlight some of the more negative and painful aspects of it. But I found your, your writing about psychedelics to be, among the best that I've ever read on the topic. And the the paradox of writing about psychedelics is that you're trying to put into words a wordless experience and an experience that, yeah, it, it is extremely difficult to put in the, in, into words and almost asks you not to put it into words. And I'm, I'm talking about LSD and shrooms uh, specifically. Those are the two that, that I've done. 
but somehow your blog posts are able to sort of point in the direction of this experience using words. And, you know, it's a really beautiful experience to read. And, and I think at one point you, you said you did sort of like four, you did acid 40 times in 10 months or, or so. So take me to the beginning. Uh, how old were you the first time you dropped acid? I was 21 and I hadn't done another drug before. Um, cause I'd been obviously quite sheltered and mm. I was really afraid of losing control over my own mind. But, uh, I was at a party in a new situation with a bunch of people and I was like, okay, fuck it. Fuck it. I'm just going to try the new thing. We're just going to do it and see. And I did it. It was awful. <laughs> it was a terrible experience because I was terrified of losing control over my own mind. Right. I, I was very rigid. I was like, through my mind, I will discover the secrets of the universe, but only because I'm like very tightly like logicking at it. Um, mm. And so that does not mesh with well with LSD, as you probably know. No. Um, yeah. But after that trip, I realized that I had done something wrong. Like it sort of subconsciously clicked for me that like, oh, if I want to do this well, then I need to stop trying in a, in a way. And then the second time I did it was really incredible. It was transformative. Um, I think it would like, I don't know if this is true, but in meditative tradition, maybe class is the rising and passing event where you finally have like a, oh, sort of feeling. And then after that, I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing it. Right. Cause that seemed, I got a lot, a lot out of it. I felt way peaceful after that. I felt like I had gained insight onto my own psychology. And so I'm like, I guess I'll just keep eating it. And I didn't realize until after I'd gone a year of eating LSD all the time that this was an unusual thing to do. You assume that this is something everyone did? Not everyone, but just, you know, I knew that people like did drugs, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know how they did drugs. Like I had no context at all for what was normal behavior. And so I just sort of kind of did whatever I feel like. And I sort of felt like other people did that too. So I thought it must not be that uncommon for people to take high doses of LSD every week. Mm-hmm. How did you move from being a person, you know, at 16 that was still very much embedded in the repressive evangelical non-drug doing culture to, to being that person at 21? Yeah, it was slow. I, even after I lost my faith, I was still culturally embedded in a lot of this stuff. Just, like, it's not like I radically changed. It was like, fuck it all. So I, I lost my faith and was like, shit. And so I, I believed in de- deism for a while. Look, there must be a God, you know, if it's not the Christian one, because we have a whole bunch of, you know, logical arguments structured to prove the existence of God. And then I was very anti-abortion for a very long time. I didn't believe in evolution still for quite some time after I lost my faith. And then it was just slow exposure to other secular people who were doing, you know, bad things that I realized like, oh wait, they're doing bad things. And it doesn't seem like they're suffering bad consequences. Like mm. they still seem happy and friendly. Um, so maybe I can try this too. So I started trying a little bit more. And, but I also didn't have like the, the kind of shame and structure that a lot of people generate when they go through public school. I mean, I did in other ways, but I had left that world. So now I was operating in a world where I didn't really have sort of this this structure telling me what to do. So I kind of, I think, went off the rails a little bit because I didn't understand that there were rails. Yeah, I think I remember you had a Twitter thread recently talking about sort of the aesthetic and and culture of public schooling from an outsider's perspective. Mm -hmm. So you you were homeschooled for almost your entire education, right? Yeah, for three months when I was 14. For three months, you, you, were, you were in public high school? Yeah, they briefly sent me to public high school. Why did they send you to public high school? 
Um, I think it was to try it out. Um, and they took me out once they realized I had access to the internet. Yeah. So that, that gets into the really more repressive sides of, of your upbringing and, and your, your father, especially. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about the pain you endured as a child at, at the hand of your father? Sure. Uh, uh, that's a, that's a loaded question, but <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, yeah. It, I mean, I've, I've worked through it by this point, so it doesn't feel quite as loaded for me as it used to. My parents used this program called Growing Kids God's Way. And basically the philosophy is that there's a natural way of child rearing, which is that like, it should be good for the parents. Like this whole thing where parents are like trying to keep their kids under control and their kids are cruel to them. Like this is abnormal. The proper way of things is that God gave us a structure, which is that there's a strict hierarchy. And so everything is very strongly enforcing that hierarchy. And so they had stuff like, if you have an infant, you need to teach them to cry through the night or to sleep through the night almost immediately. And you do this by not picking them up when they cry at night because this shows them that they can't manipulate the parents to get the parents to do what they want. Like to show from an instance from the earliest stage possible that you are in control of your child. And so they did stuff like uh, started like slapping us on the arms when we were, you know, able to sit up when we cried um, if they thought the crying was defiant and stuff like they had the philosophy of the funnel. So the funnel is uh, basically the amount of freedom that you give the child. And then if the child handles those freedoms, well, you give them a slightly larger range to handle. And if they handle that, those freedoms, well, you give them a slightly larger range. Um, and if they don't handle it well, you drop down and you drop down until they're handling the freedoms well. And by well, I mean obedient, um, which could be very difficult to do because uh, they asked a lot of like very hard things out of kids for obedience. Um, so it's it very extremely strict and uh, really based around like control and breaking your will. Um, my parents would explicitly talk about breaking my will often. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm more often here talked about from, you know, kids who grow up in, in other nations or, you know, it's something I, I, I just, one just really rarely hears about growing up in sort of secular America. I mean, you, you, it was even a, a notch more intense than, you know, kids who, who simply get spanked, you know, occasionally by their parents or who have strict parents. Mm-hmm. It was really, I'm forgetting some of the details, but um, uh, it, it was really just a, a complete, uh, like not being allowed to use a computer without supervision and not being allowed to have conversations with another Christian friend without supervision. I mean, th- this kind of repression mm. that is truly rare to hear about. And, but like all kids, you simply assume that what you're going through is normal. Right? You have yeah. no point of reference from which to judge your experience as abnormal. I viewed it as good. So you you describe in your, your piece, the trauma narrative, four different stages. Mm-hmm. And the first stage is, is the initial pain. And then the second stage has to do with some anxieties you began to suffer as a result of that pain. Can you describe some of that? Yeah. So originally like it sucked. It was just like, it sucked in the same way that like aspects of our life right now suck. Like, I have to do this chore that I really hate. And that is unpleasant Um, to pay taxes or whatever. Uh, It was like a normal sucking. And then it was like the, the contact with the outside world that made me start to realize that maybe something bad had happened. Because like, I didn't really know 
what what I had gone through in contrast. And so I would become a after I got out of the house and I would like casually mention aspects about my childhood and people would react with horror. This taught me to learn that I'm, I'm supposed to be reacting with horror. And so eventually I began to like become extremely enraged. I lived with fury in my body. Just it felt like I always had this hot coal of anger, like lodged right here. And it made it difficult for me to operate sometimes. Like I couldn't, I like had a whole breakdown on Father's Day. Like Father's Day was a day that I was useless every year. And it was really hard. Um, and, and I consider this to be uh, necessary, but also it came directly from the outside world. Like if the rest of the world had been basically the way that my family was, I never would have felt that level of horror, you know? No, yeah, that I think was the most interesting point to me about that blog post, which is there's a two-sided point here, which is society and culture in general coaches you into feeling that an experience, a bad experience is not merely a bad experience, but in this other realm of, of trauma. Mm-hmm you know, it's badness squared. And, you know, on the one hand, in the short term, that actually causes you to experience more pain than you had been experiencing. But which, you know, could lead a person to say, well, why are we doing this? But on the other hand, we have to define certain things as, as badness squared, as, as traumatic in order to just discourage people from doing them, right? To, to create moral taboos on behavior that is, you know, reliably leading to more suffering. So it's a, it's a kind Mm -hmm. of paradox where you're coaching people into feeling more pain, coaching victims, someone who is, who is a victim of some pain into feeling more pain about it, but doing it for some reason that is necessary to maintain a, a society that's sort of trying to improve itself bit by bit. I mean, this is my theory of what a lot of trauma is. Like trauma is that transition, like the, the moving from one story about your life to a different story about your life, which is absolutely required for growth. But that is what trauma is. It's going like, is that, that shedding and the rewiring. And I, I'm not really sure how to effectively put it, but I think that like becoming aware of it is a, a really good first step. And then avoiding language like should or, you know, even saying that was trauma traumatic, like that, like you can do a lot of stuff without even like explicitly saying those kinds of words. Mm. Yeah. Th- this is something I've noticed on the topic of racism, especially where how you frame an event can genuinely lead you to feel more or less pain about the event, right? Like this is, you know, the, the topic of microaggression, microaggressions is one that comes to mind where if someone says to me, oh, well, you're really articulate. I can genuinely experience that in two totally different ways. I can hear it mm-hmm. as a, a compliment. And that's how I would naturally tend to hear it had I not been exposed to an ideology which, which sort of coaches me into feeling it as, as if it were a knife. But if you are coached by that ideology, you genuinely do feel it as a knife. And then there's the further question, mm-hmm. how should we feel it? Because that, that really is the question that matters, right? Given We know that you can coach people into feeling certain, feeling almost anything 
as a trauma. You know, that, that's the interesting thing about it is that there are some experiences that are sort of reliably traumatic, almost no matter how they're framed. Just the, the experience of being, I don't know, beaten up. Although, you know, in certain contexts, if you're an MMA fighter, it could be you know, pleasurable. So almost everything is malleable to some extent. But part of what that means is that you can coach people into feeling the smallest things as if they're the largest things. And in some sense, there's nowhere to stand from which to say something is objectively small or objectively large. Yet we still have to have this conversation about how we should feel given various slights and insults and harms. It's a very sort of confusing and rudderless space uh, to exist. And I, I thought your blog post really evoked that well. And it's something that's not often talked about because talking about it risks giving the impression that what one is saying is, oh, well, trauma isn't real, that you shouldn't validate people's traumatic experiences and so forth. And that's really not the point at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I feel like there's a way to kind of go about it without saying should. Maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time people react for you when you recount something that happened or they run into like a situation. People have a reaction in advance, like on your stead. But I wish we could transition to a thing where instead of reacting for you, there's first curiosity about how you feel. Like to actually ask like, well, did you feel bad about that? And then maybe to like sort of dissect that. Like, I think there's so much space that we could go in that direction of instead of investigating sort of what is without attempting to like maneuver or like push it. Mm. Yeah, that sounds very in line with what I've learned from mindfulness meditation approaches to to trauma as well. Do you, do you have you ever tried to mindfulness meditate? I'm not sure I've seen you blog about it. I don't know. I maybe. Yeah. I'm a little bit confused on meditation. I think I might. Mm. Although I think you described one of your acid trips as a forceful meditation. Mm -hmm. Right. This is why I'm a little bit confused because Mm. uh, I feel like I've been really shaped mentally by heavy LSD use that Mm. I'm not quite sure exactly how to relate to when people say meditation. Like, I don't know if this is something that I am doing kind of on low key throughout the day or, Mm. or if they mean something like you have to sit down and pay attention. Yeah. No, I I think sometimes uh, I try to avoid it. Yeah. that, That makes sense. I can see how how you would get to that place having done that much LSD, and I think that's that's another question. Is I uh, I've only done LSD twice and shrooms three times, so you know. But I have a good friend who's probably done it, you know, almost as much as you have, and he wonders, you know, to what extent his mind has been shaped in the medium term and and permanently by it. So what have you noticed about, you know, for, for, for better and for worse about how doing that much LSD over a short period of time has shaped you? In regards to long-term effects, it's kind of difficult to explain. I do have shorter term memory now. I think that is, I mean, maybe that's something that just happens when you age, but mm. I, I kind of suspect that it did actually reduce like my ability to, to like file through and recall stuff. But I think that's really the only long-term bad thing. Um, I did have difficulty 
engaging in conversations for a while afterwards because my perception of time was so warped. I've, I've stopped suffering basically. And I feel like infinitely more capable of handling pain in my daily life. And that feels great. I would, I would rather have no memory for, for that, you know? Yeah. Wait, let's just linger on that. You yeah, wait, it suffering. is a very specific claim. Like, That's I, like, I mean claim. a very particular thing when I say suffering. That's this. Mm. Um, what do you mean? There's this like, like a pushing away of pain. I, I, there's like lots of ways that we can be aware of things mm. that we're doing and like lots of different ways in which we can push away pain. And I don't mean that like pushing away pain is inherently suffering, but I mean that it feels like there's some part of me that feels aware that this is what I want. Like that the experiences that I'm having in every given moment are exactly what I wanted. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Okay, cool. It, it does. I mean, I, I frame, I mean, many of the things you say are, are insights that I only began to learn after having done psychedelics, but then beginning to practice mindfulness meditation primarily as a way to cure panic attacks that I was having when I was uh-huh. 19 or 20. And one of the central insights was that in order to, to stop a panic attack, you have to paradoxically become totally okay with the fact that it's happening and stop resisting Mm it. And it it makes no sense that, and this is true as well with pain, with, with physical pain or emotional pain. You have to, the, the, the trick is to genuinely welcome the pain, to feel the pain and say, okay, come, you are welcome here. I'm not going to resist you. And not merely to say those words in your head, but to actually translate it into some kind of cognitive action, which is totally unnatural. Mm-hmm. But the moment you do that, you find that the pain ceases to be a problem. It's not that the pain necessarily goes away, although often it does, but it ceases to seem like a problem. And, right. and then there's, you know, the, the paradox becomes, okay, now I want to replicate this. You know, once you've done this once, you want to replicate this every time you experience pain or anxiety. But then that can just become another way of wanting to avoid pain and anxiety, which, which then doesn't work. Right. Yeah. So, right. So, yeah. So the, so the first time I, I successfully stopped a, a panic attack using this technique, I was floored and I just, cause nothing else had worked. Wow. So I, so I became very interested in these kind of insights and they're precisely the insights that I think, I think you, it seems that you just came to by doing LSD and by observing your mind on and off of, of LSD, but they're very much in line with, with what I've learned in a meditative context. Right. One interesting thing is that this doesn't seem to be the case for a lot of people who take psychedelics. And I've been extremely curious about this. I think like people's minds react very differently. And I'm very fortunate in the way that my mind reacted to LSD. But some people take LSD and, and there's none of this sort of experience. And I have really been fascinated by what are there any ways to predict the kind of person who will have that experience versus not? And like, what is it about the mentality? Is it like genetics in some way? It seems 
really hard to figure out. And I've done, I've run some uh, large surveys to try and figure this out, but none of the correlations I tested had any impact. So yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's pretty in line with my observations of all my friends. I, yeah, I had a group of friends that we all did a good amount of LSD when we were like between 18 and, and 21, probably. I was also very interested in who had what kind of experiences and if, if there were patterns, because I, I, would, I would say shrooms as well. It's in this category of drugs that can really just take you to diametrically opposed places. And, and even MDMA, though people do have different experiences on it, it overwhelmingly tends to bring people into a space of love and self-acceptance. And the exceptions seem to be exceptions that prove the rule. Whereas with LSD, I've only done it twice. And I usually describe those experiences as heaven and hell, respectively. The mm-hmm. first time was only religious language could really capture the the extent to which it was heaven. And the second time, only religious or, or medical language, the language of psychosis and schizophrenia could, could capture what I experienced there. And that was enough to deter me from, from ever doing it again. But, but that kind of thing is, you know, people usually call it a bad trip. And I've noticed that there are some people that have, have only had good trips on LSD and can't imagine why or how anyone could have a bad trip. And I think if you had asked me after my first trip, is it possible to have a bad experience on LSD? I would have looked at you like you were crazy. You know, my, with my sample size of one, I, I would say, well, 100% of my LSD experiences have been amazing. I'm not sure how this drug could be yeah. horrible. And it's really, it really is mysterious. Like we know there's something about how you feel going into it and how you feel around the people you're around set and setting, as they say. But even knowing that the set and setting you go into this drug in matters, it doesn't really help you control where you're going to go. In fact, the very notion of control is, is arguably something you just have to let go of. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if this like actually answers the question that we're asking, but it's like tangential, which is like I, the, the framework that I use to understand this is like belief constructors versus belief deconstructors. And that my theory is that if you are one of them, you tend to stay one of them across trips and there's something and, and belief constructors are ones. Cause when you do LSD, it's sort of like kind of attacks what you think is real or, you know, yourself or your belief system in some way, like it, it breaks it down, like acid dissolving it. And I think, people tend to do one of two things in the face of that. Like some people lose a sense of their belief structure and then they kind of sit with it. Like, okay, I don't believe anything right now. That's interesting. And then some people find this intolerable and they're like, okay, if that wasn't true, then that means there's something else must be true. And then they figure out like a different sort of set of beliefs to construct. And this can appear in a myriad of different ways. Like it can be like a end up in a really bad trip because you think you get paranoid um, or you become delusional and you think that you're God in like a literal sense, not in a psychedelic sense. And those people, I think, get less out of LSD in general um, because you're distracting yourself from being in uncertainty because you can't tolerate it. 
And so I, uh, this obviously doesn't answer like why people are one of those two in the first place, or even if people can transition, I don't know. Um, but that's, that's just sort of the way I think about it. Yeah. I think that makes sense to me. I think, um, my one horrible LSD experience definitely had to do with clinging deeply to a belief that was absurd and paranoid, namely that the friend I was doing LSD with was trying to kill me. That's somehow oh, that That's uh, a just a seed of that idea got into my head and blossomed into this completely paranoid first person experience where I was, I was essentially the protagonist of a horror movie and mm. my best friend was saw, you know, he was the ax murderer. And another thing you know, that's interesting about these drugs is how both the positive and negative experiences can survive uh, you becoming sober again. Mm-hmm. They can have that, that it took me days, maybe months to shake off that experience. So these are not drugs you should do lightly, you know, right. logically there are people that are, that have done LSD and if they could do it again, should not have done it at all. Should just have lived a life, not knowing what it's like. But it's difficult to know who you are, you know, which category you are. If you're someone who's going, really going to benefit from the expansive mind that, that you're now inhabiting on the drug, or if you're someone who's just going to be destabilized by it. Mm-hmm. And I was always, I, I was too curious and, and like you had the experience of just having friends do these drugs and seem okay and, and even seem maybe more interesting as a result that I um, curiosity got the best of me. Yeah. I think ideally people should work up from a low dose, like take something small, something that's not going to affect you for three days and then sort of pay attention and see if you do any sort of very mild belief constructing. And if not, then take a slightly higher dose and then pay attention and see if you're belief constructing. And then if not keep going. And then as soon as you start belief constructing, just like maybe chill out a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's, a much wiser strategy than I think most people employ for some reason. I'm not sure why that isn't yeah, just I common mean, wisdom. It should be common wisdom to start at a low dose. Yeah, I think it would save a lot of heartache. Okay, so other drug I want to touch on is MDMA because uh, it's something I have much more experience with. And there's a kind of offhand line in your blog post, the trauma narrative, where you mentioned that MDMA helped you cure the anxieties that resulted from your childhood pains with your parents. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? To some degree. Yeah, mostly uh, like touch and social anxiety um, was a big one. It, it actually lasted for a couple of years and then it has mm. come back a bit. So I'm actually planning on taking MDMA tonight oh, so good. to oh, help with awesome. that again. Yeah. Thanks. But yeah, I took, I took a bunch of MDMA in a giant cuddle pack. Cause I, I have like mm. touch phobia. I'm like, I have mm. problems when people touch me. Um, and then I was able to touch people mm-hmm. while on MDMA and like, it kind of made my brain realize like, wait, this mm-hmm. is a safe and good thing. And that helped me for a very long time. It like reduced a lot of the anxiety I had by about 80% or something. Um, last for about two years and then it came back. So I think I view MDMA as sort of like a every year. Yeah. It's like a, like a emotional medicine. vaccine. Kind of that you have to re up. Functional <laughs> vaccine. Yeah, yeah. No, that that doesn't surprise me at all. I've done MDMA maybe ten times or so, and I I think I probably haven't waited long enough between 
doses to sort of full feel the full effect every time. But Mm. the first time I did it, I I did it once and then waited maybe two years and and did it again. And I had a, I had a similar experience where, and I I can't really say this about acid or shrooms of feeling medium term changes to my personality that were large and positive, like feeling, Mm. you know, waking up for three months and feeling like a more loving and relaxed version of myself. And really testing to see whether this was placebo and, and noticing that it wasn't. At the same time, there is a sort of a gravity of accrued selfhood that slowly pulls you back to the slightly, in my case, the sort of slightly colder and more muted person that I tend to be relative to, to who I could be. But nevertheless, just doing MDMA once is something I am much more willing to recommend broadly than, than doing acid or shrooms. I'm much more comfortable recommending that to someone and yeah, definitely safer. safer. And especially. At least mentally. I know it's physically a little bit less safe, but mentally worse for your brain, but uh, yeah, safer for your mind in in some way. And especially for trauma. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that, the effects of trauma were sort of temporarily, but for the medium term nullified by this drug. And that's something people are studying. They're studying the effect on PTSD and so forth. And, and it seems to work at least to some extent. Yeah. So another aspect of your identity is sex work and porn and only fans and also being I would, uh, I would say an advocate or explainer of polyamory to sort of the, the, the monogamous world. If, if that, does that, do you think that accurately yeah. describes it? <laughs> I, I enjoy that. I am a polyamory <laughs> explainer. Uh, on my card. Yeah, that, that sounds, that's about a correct so summary. So autobiographically, how did you begin to get into this world? from being a a sheltered Christian girl? Yeah, well, uh, as a sheltered Christian girl, I was expected to become a housewife. Maybe go to college to find a guy, basically. So my future had never been bright. My family was very poor. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to work at a gas station my whole life. That was sort of my thought, like minimum wage job. And then I ended up working at a factory for a year and it was really awful. What, What kind of factory was it? curious. It was Schweitzer Engineering and we manufactured electrical assembly uh, relays. Electrical I, relays. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. So I had like on okay. the, the vests. Yeah. They're, um, they help control electrical mm. systems. So basically these units that like would shut off or control in various ways. Um, so we had to like stand on an assembly line and do mm. a task over and over in fluorescent lighting. Mm. It was awful. Worked like 50, mm. 60 hour weeks. It's not cool. And so I was like, I don't know if this is what, like I had a moment of like, what am I doing with my life? I, I don't know if this is what I want. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to try and figure out how to. And how, how old are you at this point? 19. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to try and make my own business because people do that. Um, but I, I also find it hard to overstate how disconnected from society I was. Like a lot of the things I wanted to do, I had no 
concept of like what social norms were. Like I, it, it's even, it's difficult to explain because a lot of the social norms are so minor that it, I can't even tell them to you because they're in the water. Right. It's just in vocabulary and like the way that people interact with each other and like what you expect, like, do you handshake this or do you like call someone up at night? Like, I don't know. Anyway. So I, um, I tried to make my own business to do photography and that went terribly because I had no idea what I was doing. And eventually I was like living off of savings I had from the factory and sleeping on a friend's couch. And a guy that I was briefly dating told me about camming and said, we should try it. And I was like, okay. But then we broke up before we ended up giving it a shot. And so eventually I was like, okay, fuck it. I guess I'll try showing my tits on the internet. And then I did, and I made $60 the first night. And I was like, that's the most money I'd ever seen for that little work. And then I became like obsessed. I was like, okay, this is my ticket out of here. I need to work as hard as I can. And then that was um, when I was 20. And then, then I've been doing sex work on and off since then. Are you concerned about your privacy when browsing the internet? I know most of you are probably thinking, why not just use incognito mode? Well, incognito mode doesn't hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why I recommend using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your data to advertising companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, and even smart TVs. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired Magazine. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Coleman, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Coleman. So was there friction from the, the mores you were raised with um, entering the, a world that your parents and whole community would have certainly disapproved of? Yeah, well, I already wasn't Christian. So there was already a really big disconnect for me in my previous community. Like that means that being friends with people that I used to be friends with is kind of weird. Like they probably wouldn't invite you over for holidays. And internally it was, uh, for me, I'm like a little bit autistic and pretty compartmentalizing. And so once I figured out that the morals I'd been raised with were not what I wanted, they're like, oh, that's, that's kind of wrong. I sort of flipped over. I was like, okay, well, if that's wrong, I don't, I don't know what is wrong. So like, I guess sex work seems like there's no logical reason not to do it. I was very governed by sort of like what there were logical mm. reasons to do. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And if I'm uncomfortable, that's not a good reason mm. for me to not do it. Uh, so I was very uncomfortable for a while when I started. Yeah. You've also described how sort of making new friends and becoming financially independent was really valuable for you in this industry. Yeah. And this is obviously, it's a taboo thing to do in polite society. But as you say, I can't find any logical reason why it's, it's wrong to the extent that everything is consensual. Right. And I had already disconnected from the mm. previous world. Like 
a lot of people don't do sex work or they're afraid of it because they're afraid their community will judge them. But I had mm-hmm. left my community behind. So there was really nothing for me to lose. Did, did you not talk to your parents at this point or? I wasn't talking to my dad. Um, mm. I still kind of don't. And I wasn't talking very much to my mom, not because I was just yeah. paying attention to other things. Yeah, I was not very connected. And plus I was kind of mad at them. So that made it easier. I I notice on Twitter sometimes that there are, at least I've seen more than once you in the position of correcting misunderstandings, what you view as misunderstandings or misinterpretations of sex work. And I, I have the impression that you defend against the idea that women are necessarily exploited by participating in sex work, as well as questioning the logic behind the taboos around doing sex work. So is, if I have mm-hmm. that impression right, what, what do you notice in, in the culture or online about in terms of people's misperceptions or, or false beliefs about sex work? I mean, the exploitation thing is one of them. I regularly read a lot of forums from areas that I disagree with. And one of them is anti-pornography. And the views there are so strange. They believe that all women who engage in this, in any form of sex work are necessarily exploited because they don't want to be. This is non-consensual in some way. Um, There's a really strong disgust that people have with associating money in exchange for sex which I, I don't think I really resonate with or understand. I would like to understand it more. And was it, was the question also about polyamory or is it just um, sex work? I forget. Well, yeah, it can be, it can be. It was about sex work, but. Yeah. A lot of people think that we, that it's not very, doesn't take effort. People view sex work as very lazy, uh, which I think is uh, true per dollar earned, but not true in general. It's funny that people are like sex workers make too much money. Uh, this is very stupid. And also uh, sex workers uh, are terrible and shouldn't do it. And and I think those two feed into each other. Like the more that you shame sex workers, the more money mm-hmm. they're going to make because the, like the stronger mm-hmm. market you're creating, you know, you're suppressing competition. Right. So it, it feels like, like this, you're just making this work yeah. really. So I guess polyamory is, is the, the natural next topic. What is polyamory? When did you sort of discover that you are polyamorous and what are some of the misconceptions about it? Uh, Polyamory is having relationships with multiple people, uh, romantic or intimate in a way that where everybody knows and generally on the same page about. And I got into polyamory when I was very young. I was dating my first boyfriend. I was monogamous and that I met some poly people. And I was like, oh, that's me. That is what I've been all this time. It felt like like a really deep thing in me because with my boyfriend, he had like sexed some girl. And I was like, shame, which is another um, aspect of like society telling you to be upset by something. Like I felt like, like sort of in the background, like, Oh, this is something I am given a social right to be angry at. So I'm going to, uh, because this is my role, but I didn't really genuinely feel it. And so I was upset at him. And then later on when I figured out like, Oh wait, there is a system that people use and where you don't have to actually feel that way. I was really drawn to it. And that ended up being the, the death of the relationship mm-hmm. with my monogamous boyfriend because mm-hmm. I did not want to be monogamous anymore. And uh, since then, I've been 100% polyamorous for almost 10 years. 
And a lot of the misconceptions around it, mainly a confusion of exclusivity and commitment. So a lot of people think that if you are not exclusive, this means that you cannot be committed. It's like so joined in their minds. Like you try and separate it and and they just like can't can't really conceive of it because like if you're fucking another person, like does this, this must mean somehow that you are less dedicated to your other partner. Uh, This is absolutely not the case. There's like poly families have been together for 20 years. You know, you can be extremely dedicated to multiple people. So I'm constantly waging that war on Twitter. So yeah, no, Diana Fleischman and Jeffrey Miller are, are friends of mine that are also themselves polyamorous and married and, and also spokespeople for it and, and both evolutionary psychologists Yeah, I, I um, as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the, the, the natural question people have is, well, how, how the hell do you manage the jealousy? Jealousy is another one of those things that is sort of socially mm-hmm. designed. Like if you grow up your entire life, and every single narrative you've ever seen about relationships tells you that you're supposed to be jealous when somebody, when like your partner does something with somebody else uh, and that this is like good and right and it encourages it. Of course, you're going to feel jealous when you get into a polyamorous relationship. Like it's so everywhere, the, the narrative that you're supposed to feel jealousy. So you are. And, and I mean, I also feel jealousy too. But I think jealousy like comes for a reason, right? And that reason typically is a, a fear of losing your partner. Or for me, it's something like, oh, my partner like is dating her and she maybe she's cooler than me. Maybe my partner will like her better than me. He's going to leave her because I'm inadequate. And then then that like gives me a, a, something to latch on to. Okay, I believe that I am inadequate and I'm afraid of being alone. And so if you can like figure out what's underneath the jealousy, then you have like an actual issue that you can address. And sometimes you can actually address it. You can like come to terms with being alone or you can come to terms with being inferior, which usually is the thing that I attempt to do. Like, okay, what is the world where I am inferior? Let me accept that world. And then another is just over time, like your body starts to realize that there's not a threat and it starts to calm down. Like often your partner will be dating somebody else and you're going to freak out because you think they're going to leave you. But then if they keep not leaving you, eventually you're going to stop really being afraid about it because it's like clearly not true. So just exposure therapy will help. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was talking to my friend recently who just started dating someone and he, you know, he's very similar to me in that he, he tends to be pretty, at least outwardly in control of his emotions. He doesn't have any bursts of anger in life. He's, Actually, I would say even more even keel than I am. And he's probably my most well-adjusted friend. If I, if I had to choose one that is just, you know, reliable and whose emotions always seem correctly calibrated for the situation, it would be this guy. And his girlfriend has this, is, is friends with her ex. And he found that this absolutely drove him to a level of anger that he could not recognize himself, right? He could feel the anger welling up and notice as it's happening, this is totally unreasonable. I'm just being, I'm being crazy right now. And even knowing that I'm being crazy, I cannot manage to forcibly dial down my anger right now. And I empathize with this emotion mm-hmm. deeply because it's, it's one I've also felt when it comes to sexual jealousy, for instance. And 
you know, it occurs to me that this may just be a trait that varies in people. And, you know, it's a trait that I wouldn't have known that I had. And I, and I'm fairly sure wasn't instilled into me by the culture because it's actually, um, like there, there's a level of jealousy that is co-signed by mainstream culture. And then there's a level of jealousy I've experienced and, and my friends has experienced where it's like, you're mm-hmm. friends with a boy and I cannot handle it. Right. And maybe after two months of being together, three months of being together, it subsides. But even that I could experience such anger, such anger that I'm, I'm driven to by almost nothing in this world over you having a totally innocent friendship with a male. And the fact that I'm in fact embarrassed to express how angry I am. And I only do it in the hopes that expressing it helps me overcome it because I understand that I'm being crazy. It, it leads me to believe that there's just there's a, you know, this is probably a trait that occurs on a spectrum. And if I were to guess, it's probably partly heritable. And, and if that's true, it leads me to believe that poly, the question of polyamory and, and monogamy, what, though it might be partly a matter of coming to realizations or being persuaded into one or the other, that it's much more, it's, it, it may end up be being just closer to being gay or straight or bi in that it's, you just are what you are. And it's, it's not, the, the most important thing is just to be honest with, with yourself about what you want and what you're capable of and to not judge other people or try to push other people into one or the other, just sort of a live and let mm-hmm. live type mentality. Does that model of monogamy and polyamory make sense to you or do you view it differently? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that like um, polyamory is hard and it has a lot of benefits. And if the cost of those benefits is high enough for you, then it makes sense to not pay that Mm -hmm. cost for what you would get out of it. I think for a lot of people, like the kind of reaction that they have, for whatever reason, whether it be from society or from like genetics or from like other issues, you don't even have to explain it. Like it doesn't matter the origin. It's just the fact right. that it is there. And it might take so much effort to like work through or neutralize it that it's just not really a feasible thing to concentrate mm-hmm. on for your life. And that seems totally legitimate to me. Like if you decide it's not worth mm-hmm. it, then don't do it. Yeah. Do, do you experience that the polyamorous community comes under attack? quite a bit online or? Yeah. People believe that polyamorous people mm. can't raise children or they don't really love their partners. It, it's very reminiscent of stuff I heard against um, homosexuality. Like a lot of this stuff, like your relationships aren't real or your relationships are flawed because you approach mm. it in this other way or like you're definitely going to fall apart. Yeah. Th- I think there's way more attacks on poly. <laughs> I, I kind of just want polyamory to like be viewed sort of mm. equally to monogamy in some way, like in respect. Or, or like to understand that, that it is quite serious and there is like dedication and this is, this is a viable option for like mm. an actual way of life. Yeah. I think, uh, I have to think a good amount of the attack comes from envy, right? This, or some kind of, mm. I think it, monogamy is the default, right? And so I have to assume there are, there are people who would want to be polyamorous and maybe they even have the naturally 
malleable or low jealousy to make it workable. But for whatever reason, never made the effort or, and then, you know, they, they see people talking about how great polyamory is and feel some urge to tear it down. I mean, that, that would be my Mm -hmm. psychologizing of why people who are, you know, totally accepting of homosexuality and bisexuality and all kinds of sexuality would nevertheless be hostile towards a community that isn't really infringing on them at all. There's also like mate selection problems. I think a lot of the pushback against polyamory comes from men who feel sexually insecure because they're imagining a world where if everybody can fuck everybody, then all the women will want to fuck the top 10 men and all of the rest of the men will be left in the dust. And that's extremely threatening to them. Mm. I think that that is one thing that I hear a lot. Oh, interesting. That people actually articulate that logic, you know, behind their critique of polyamory. Wow. Some do. Some do. Like, I think that this is generally what motivates a lot of this. Like, Mm. we have to lock them down, you know, because like the women are going to go and get impregnated by other men. And it's really scary. I I think that generally. Oh, so it's like fear of being cucked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the hate I think that men get for being poly is much greater than the hate that women get for being poly. Because like for men, it's a threat to their masculinity because your woman is going off and fucking another guy. Like you must be such a mm. loser. Oh, I see. Yeah. Sucks. That's interesting though. I My prediction is that what, what feminism would say or predict is that men are praised for having multiple partners, whereas women are regarded as sluts. But it seems you're saying at least with polyamory, mm-hmm. it's sort of the opposite that because men are viewed as letting their female partners have sex with other men. And that outweighs the whatever mm-hmm. respect they garner for having multiple partners in people's minds. Right. I mean, I, I know that like feminism has that pressure, but a, a lot of the, the when people do hate polyamory, I think a lot of it comes from the sense of this would make me more sexually insecure in this sort of system. I would not get my sexual needs met. I would not be sexually desired. They view monogamy as like one of the only ways of like guaranteeing that, that they will have a mate. And so if you take that away, it's extremely threatening. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your, I guess, more recent foray into you know, talking about the the politics of race and and maybe politics in general. And I guess the way I want to introduce this is that I think I see a de- definitely a strain of your thinking that falls in line with the rationalist community with people like Slate Star Codex. And I was on Julia Gayleff's po- podcast recently. And it's a style of thinking that is very, that prides itself on being dispassionate and apolitical. And it's a style of thinking that I feel most comfortable in certainly. And I think that's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. no accident that I find your writing so compelling at the same time. I'm someone who has definitely gone into the world of talking about politics from a passionate perspective rather than a dispassionate, detached, scholarly, simply curious perspective. Even though I feel much more at home in the sort of just the, 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 the style of engagement that is more 
common in the, in the rationalist community. Do you feel a kind of tension between that? Um, do you know what I'm talking about? That there's, you know, there's a kind of, there's a style of engagement that is like a fighting mindset, right? Like there's a thing out in the world that we have to fight for. And then there's another style of engagement that is deep and dispassionate curiosity, not dispassionate in the sense of, of sort of not caring, but in the sense that I really am so curious where the answer to this question leads that I'm going to try to leave all of my biases and preconceptions and even, you know, moral preconceptions at, at the door. So there's these two different styles. And I think I can sort of see you going back before, back and forth between them on, on Twitter. And I, and I do this as well. So I, I wonder if you notice that tension at all or think about it. I really like that question because it's something I've sort of been feeling in myself lately and haven't actually articulated. So it, it feels like really good to have you see that in, in my confusion. Are you familiar with mistake yes. and conflict theory? Yeah. It, it sounds like you're describing like kind of mistake versus conflict. You should describe it a little for listeners who don't know. Yeah. With, uh, this is a, from a blog post by uh, Scott Alexander on Slater Codex, basically describing that like there's two sort of philosophies of approaching the world and conflict and conflict is conflict theory is that they believe that there are sort of like good guys and bad guys or bad actors. And the, the way to um, engage is, is through sort of war. Like if you don't do war, then they're going to, you know, overrun you and take over and you need to do this to survive. And then mistake theory is sort of like, well, conflicts arise from people being mistaken, not from being bad. That if we just sort of sit around and like, look at the, the problem closely enough, eventually we're going to figure out that there is a truth to the matter. I definitely like the mistake theory version. But as I think I operate a little bit conflict theory, I feel like mistake theory, like like operating as though we're just trying to figure out the reality of the world feels like um, sort of a cooperation kind of way. Like if I do this and you do this, then we're both good. But if I do this and you're doing conflict theory, then you might run over me. And so I try to do mistake theory as much as I can to signal that I'm willing to cooperate if you do this too, I will do this too. And I'm willing to change my mind. Like it's possible that you are correct. And if we can, I will, I will come over to quote unquote your team. If uh, you can be convincing enough. So I, that's what I try to do, but I do think that there is some sort of like, I, I do view us as at war in some way in the sense that I think that the woke stuff is terrifying and is going to destroy people's mm. mental health. And that makes me feel angry and afraid and defensive and protective of people that I love and people that mm. I don't even know. And so I feel like I'm trying to fight the war through mistake theory in some way, like, or maybe I'm not using these terms correctly. I don't, I don't want to rely on them too heavily, but I feel like I'm trying to fight a war and in that be as charitable as I can be, be like, I really think that what you're doing is terrible, but like the whole time trying to be vulnerable in that. You're, what you're doing is bad. And also I'm willing to be wrong. Like, I don't know how to, how to make those two things mesh. I agree with you that there is a tension and I feel pretty confused in myself about how to, how to operate within both of them at the same time. So where did you first encounter, you know, woke politics? Sort of how have you come to have an opinion on it and care about it? I don't remember where I first encountered it. It sort of like grew out of yeah. the internet ether, but yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of my religious upbringing, the way that these people talk. 
And it like that, that makes me terrified. It's like, do you not see, like, I feel like I've been there. Like, I feel like I've done that shit. I know what that is. It's like this, this tribalism, it's this moralization of the things that we're talking about. It's uh, like attaching this sort of epic narrative to facts, right? Like it's no longer about the facts. We can't discuss the facts in isolation. The facts are indicative of sin or God or Mm -hmm. racism or whatever. And so, and so we're loaded, right? Like we cannot think clearly, like it's a deliberate attempt to remove your ability to think clearly so that you can like actually fight this, this other thing. Like this isn't like an ideological and tribal thing that's masquerading using mm. facts as cover. And it, that feels so clear to me. It feels like disgusting. And, and I feel really upset by it. And I, I feel so confused how they don't see that they're mm. religious. It feels very obvious. Yeah. Um, John McWhorter and Andrew Sullivan, I think, have, have both written great pieces explicitly comparing intersectionality and, and wokeness to religion. And I think it's obvious to me as well. I never grew up with religion. I was always sort of atheistic by nature, but also grew up in, a, in an atheist household. But when I was, I began to be introduced to wokeness when I was 15 or 16 through my friends at school and through Tumblr and as well as at a seminar that I went to, which I I think I've talked about before on on this podcast, uh, I was shipped off to a seminar when I was 16 years old. That was a meeting of maybe a thousand private school students from all across the country where we just learned the tenets of intersectionality. And, you know, I I had, I grew up in a very liberal town and it was a, I grew up with a kind of a very diverse, racially diverse town. And I grew up with a default progressive attitude in the, in the Martin Luther King style of, of, of the word progressive towards race, which is that your skin color doesn't matter. Racism was so obviously idiotic that it was almost not worth talking about. And I had an instinct to never segregate based on race. And I I remember when I was 10 years old, some kid had the idea to play a soccer game of the black kids versus the white kids. And the the type of kid I was at the time, me and this other, other black girl, we just walked away and we were like, we're not participating in this because this is, there's like something inherently wrong about this. That was the kind of sort of default moral intuition I had. And then I went to this, seminar where I was taught the terms white privilege and uh, internalized oppression. And I was always a skeptic by nature. So I had questions, but the environment was so repressive that I couldn't ask those questions. And, and though it was repressive, it was also deeply spiritual. Right? There were kids there that were coming out of the closet for the first time that were from places where, and, and you know, bawling in tears over being in a place where they finally felt accepted in their sexuality. And it was this incredibly warm and spiritual environment where you also were not allowed to ask any questions. And I thought, you know, years later, I thought this, this must be what many people feel like growing up in church, that there's clearly something beautiful and deep about it, but it relies on repression of thought in order to maintain itself. Yeah. It's, it's defensive. It's fearful. Yeah. 
and, and this is like sort of one of the tenets of rationality is like that which can be killed by the truth should be. Yeah. So this is why there are such opposing odds. And I'm so drawn to the thing where if you tear yourself open and let yourself be destroyed by something that might not be you, you know, an opposing idea that feels holy to me. And, and these people are doing the exact opposite, which is how they stay together. It's how religion has persisted for so long. And I think yeah. this is why like wokeism is spreading so well is because there's none of that. There's none of this like welcoming of like self-destruction. Mm. It's like extremely like holding on. It's like a very concrete cell membrane that like has a lot of mechanisms to keep the, the anything threatening outside of it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're clearly built for this kind of thing as a species at some level. Yeah. You know, it's not an accident that most people throughout most of history have been religious and have believed things that are patently and provably absurd and have punished anyone who dissents like that's that's not uh that's not a bug that's a feature yeah but we we also have the feature and and the capability of reason and and rationality and in various places and various times that has won out and that is definitely i I definitely view myself and the, the work and the writing i do as you know in the tradition of reason's criticism of religion I mean, there, there are even some deeper symmetries to notice between, say, like white privilege and original sin. I think, yeah, you know, the, the is original sin something you grew up believing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're Calvinist, so. Okay. You know, I only know uh, what I know about it from, from reading about it, but the symmetries seem, seem right there to be noticed. Like the, the notion that you are born guilty of something, right? This is what Robin D'Angelo right. says. If you're white, you are born a racist. It's actually not your fault in a deep sense, right? You are literally just inevitably to be born white in America is to imbibe racism. There's no agency about it whatsoever. And you can never get rid of it, actually. Mm-hmm. But even though you can't get rid of it, you have to constantly do the work, right? You have to constantly take my program until the end of time knowing that you'll never get rid of it, but you still do have mm-hmm. to take this particular healing program that I have of, of critical race theory in this case. I, I mean, and then the parallel. I think the this, is, sin. this is appealing to people. I think people want to be told that there's something wrong with them because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people feel that mm-hmm. like a lot of people feel vague shame, guilt or whatever, and don't have a clear path for how to make that go away, how to atone. And so here there's the exact same thing. It's like, all right, all right, you are. Yeah, you do suck. And people are like, okay, all right, yeah. And they're like, okay, in order to not suck, we're going to give you very clear instructions on how to not, to not, to attempt, right? And so you, you prove yourself wholly in the attempt. You can like finally live with yourself if you are like making motions towards this very clearly delineated um, like safety place where you are no longer a bad person. You're finally okay. And so it, it just feels like it's pulling on, it's giving people like an actual concrete structure for this nebulous thing that sort of is inside all of us. I think all of us really feel that deep mm. down. No, I think that's right. Like I'm not. A, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a great Louis C.K. joke where he, he just references the forever empty that people feel inside. Right. And I think, and, and the whole crowd laughs knowingly. Right. There's just this, you know, this sense of, of not enoughness inside. And any thought system that can come in with a pack package that says, 
that acknowledges that you feel alienated, right? I'm, as opposed to most of society, which is, and marketing, which is just, you know, pleasure-based and this is what you need, blah, blah, blah. There's these thought systems that sort of carve out a space where they say, wait a minute, breathe. Something feels wrong, right? You don't feel totally at home in the world. You sort of hate yourself or you feel vaguely guilty. Let me explain all of that. I know why. And then they give you a program to help. And, and that's enormously attractive. That, that's the genius of the doctrine of original sin. And it's also the genius of, of the doctrine of white privilege. And I totally see the appeal of it. The problem is it requires you to adopt all of these beliefs about what your skin color how your skin color makes you different from others, how it prevents you from knowing certain things or helps you know certain things. Mm -hmm. So in D'Angelo's case, allegedly I as a black person, like if, if we're talking about the subject of race, you have to default to my opinion. I just, epistemologically, I have something over you, which is that I know things in a way that you can't possibly, which is quite the claim to make philosophically. Um, my skin color just helps me. It, it gives me another way of knowing and a deeper way of knowing things such that you can't challenge my beliefs, right? There, there's nothing you can really say on the topic of race that is valuable at all. And I remember I was talking to a, a white friend of mine recently and he's, he's a you know smart guy and not woke at all, sort of vaguely economically left on, on politics. And he said, well, I just feel like as a white guy, like I just really have nothing of value to add to the conversation on race. And I thought that was the crux of, of what I disagree with because I know this person to be too smart to have nothing to say, right? Like I know he, mm. he might correct me on something and this is a topic I, I pay a lot of attention to, but from the mix of his mind and life experience, I know that if he has nothing of value to say on the topic of race, then a lot of people have nothing of value to say on the topic of race, including a lot of black people, right? Just because of the kind of mind I know him to have. And the notion that he would feel that because of his skin color, he has nothing to add. That's really at the core of what I'm trying to criticize when I criticize sort of woke epistemology in any event. It's good to see that you're sort of speaking out about these things. And I wonder to what degree also your background having grown up poor is a part of this. There is this, I think, if not explicit part of wokeness, but a kind of implicit sense that, yes, there are poor white people, but fundamentally the conversation can't be about class rather than race. It has to be about yeah. race. So do you, do you notice that? And what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it's just a power move, right? Like the way that you delineate the power structures like depends, like tells you like who you can give authority to. And obviously it's not advantageous for them to give power to poor people because a lot of white people are poor. It's, it's just like a redrawing of boundaries. It's like gerrymandering the, mm. the concepts. And yeah, I mean, I grew up really poor and like I 
had to work at a factory for a year and I didn't go to college right beyond like a couple months. And so it, it feels so strange to me. It's like, like that doesn't do anything. And I know that they have responses to that. You know, they have well-structured immune responses to being like, well, that, I mean, you would have been worse if you were black, mm -hmm. right? Like if you were poor, but you had also been black, then it would have been even harder for you. Mm -hmm. Which like to some degree may be true, but it's this, it's just the, the way that they're placing emphasis on important is not nuanced whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's very binary, right? ironically. So, so like I, I grew up with wealth and it was obvious from the time I was born that I was going to go to college. And mm -hmm. I grew up around a lot of other black people in precisely the same or very similar scenario. Like, you know, my town was a, a wealthy New York suburb that was like a third black. Mm -hmm. So if under the woke worldview just putting myself next to you, I would trump you in every respect except for you being a woman. Your class would actually do nothing for you in terms of your social status relative to me. You couldn't really invoke your quote unquote white poverty as a sort of platform to stand on to make your opinions matter. You could right. do it with being a woman. That would give you some kind of standing, but it flattens the whole contour of privilege and luck and opportunity, which are all real concepts and just narrows them down to one, one aspect or two aspects, you know, race right. and gender. Whereas it's actually a, a the, the conversation about privilege is like a 12,000 dimensional conversation sure. having to do with yes, race and gender, but also geography, family, uh, genetics, yeah. individual genetics, you know, things as trivial as, as, as height and facial symmetry and beauty and, you know, uh, personality traits, where you're born, when you're born. Those are just the most obvious ones. But, you know, in a million other ways, this conversation is so multidimensional. Yet the only things that are recognized are group characteristics, Right. It's not about yeah. Ayla and Coleman. It's about white woman and black man. I was in a, a clubhouse room like a month or two ago and it was for sex workers. Mm -hmm. And I was the only white sex worker there. Mm -hmm. And there was, they went around like, how did you get into it? And I was really surprised to find that every single other sex worker who talked did it from a place of privilege, I guess. Somebody was like, well, I had a, I was a high paid lawyer and I decided to try it for fun. And then it was great that I did it. Or it's like, Oh, I just did it because um, I needed to get back at my boyfriend or <laughs> it was just like all of these things, like none, not a single one was born out of like desperate need to mm. not go work at a factory or something. And, and then I shared mine and I was like, well, I was really poor and I was, I didn't have a home at the time and I had to, mm. and it felt surreal to me that like, I was the only like white person who was the least advantaged. And then soon in that conversation, they started talking about how privileged I was in sex work because I was white, um, which is, I mean, like, I'm not like, that is the conversation to have. I'm not saying that isn't a thing, but it's, it's so interesting that like nobody says a single word about the drive to get into sex work, mm -hmm. like, or how, how mine, I was different from everybody else, but there was attention brought to my skin color. Yeah. And it feels so unnatural. It feels mm -hmm. like there's something being done 
to the way that we're thinking about this. We're not mm. carving reality at the joints at all. Yeah. So that's a great example. Yeah. What it really is, is I think there's a, a lot of people that would be much more warm to the idea of white privilege if it were treated as simply one amongst many equally compelling and interesting varieties of privilege in this world that carve up the social world in on, in all sorts of ways, right? Like, yeah, but it's really an obsessive focus. It's an obsessive focus that's presented as if it's just totally reasonable. And it would be reasonable if it were in the context of an actual discussion about privilege and opportunity in general as it manifests. And, you know, the other thing is this, the white friend I was talking to referencing earlier, he, he had the kind of upbringing class wise and family structure wise that is the stereotype of, of black people. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea that he has nothing to contribute, even only from his lived experience about, you know, what it's like to grow up with a struggling single mother in, in his case, because he's white, that suggests to me something wrong with just how we're connecting lived experience, which is a real and important thing, and our desires to, to make sense and, and improve the world, right? And even lived experiences are so malleable. Like, like this is what we were talking about earlier. Like I went through childhood trauma. It was really awful. Mm-hmm. And my perspective on that is so different from a lot of people who've also gone through childhood trauma. Or like my experience as a woman raised in an extraordinarily patriarchal culture. Like my perspective on feminism is pretty different from a lot of people who are also women. Like just because you go through a thing, like doesn't mean that there is only one way to look at the thing or that like the kind of narratives you use to make sense of the thing can't be like incredibly different from what they are. Like lived experience feels like smoke to me in some ways. Yeah. The anecdote that I always bring up on the topic of lived experience is the the twin examples of Thomas Sowell and James Baldwin, who I think were probably the greatest black conservative and liberal writers of, of the 20th century. And on the topic of race, if you express skepticism of woke anti-racism, what I've often gotten in reply is, well, you're, you're black and you grew up privileged, right? You didn't grow up in the hood. You didn't grow up in place where it would make sense to fear the cops. And that's true. And that's a, a, a way of sort of dismissing my ideas or, or explaining my ideas to someone that thinks the experience of being black should inevitably lead you to the worldview of ta Coates and Ibram Kendi and so forth. And this is one of those armchair philosophy ideas that it sounds good to people on paper and it, it sort of makes some, some sense until you actually look at the world, right? It's, it's just easily debunkable, right? So Sowell and Baldwin are the sort of example I always have in my sling. It was like, they both grew up in Harlem, like five years apart. And Sowell, in fact, was less privileged than Baldwin, you know, was in a homeless shelter for, for a period. And yet he became the conservative and Baldwin became the, the liberal. And the deeper point is that they just, you know, they grew up in the same place being black in the same time and came to completely different conclusions intellectually about the the topic of racial inequality and the sources of racial inequality and the best way to approach them policy-wise and so forth. And then if you look at the wider 
context of, you know, famous black conservatives to the extent that one really becomes famous, you know, someone like Glenn Lowry is from the South side of Chicago, as is Shelby Steele, Walter Williams, who, who recently passed away was from the projects in Philadelphia. And all of these people had the sorts of backgrounds that allegedly are supposed to, to lead you to, to sound like Ibram Kendi on these issues. And, and yet they didn't. So there's really no empirical backing to this notion that lived experience, you know, leads you is the sort of inevitable cause of woke beliefs and the logical cause of woke beliefs. And, and in fact, every time I've seen polling from Pew and NPR, I think as well, which finds that at least among black Americans, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to say that racism is a huge problem that's affected your life. That's an interesting result. I I don't know exactly. There are a few different ways that result could be interpreted, but it's certainly, it's, it's not obvious that being more economically privileged and should lead you to have more woke beliefs, right? If anything, it seems like the model should be the more poverty and, and hardship you've experienced as a black person, the more you should be likely to, absorb woke anti-racism, which is an ideology of the downtrodden and oppressed, right? Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that like, it, it feels frustrating because I was like, that's a good argument. And then my mind went, well, if we just like express that argument to them, then maybe they would update their perspective. And then I was like, no, that, <laughs> that wouldn't work at all. And then I just had a little bit of sadness. Yeah. Well, it, it works with some, mm-hmm. obviously, but yeah, I mean, the truth is so much of this is mediated by social approval and not wanting to lose friends. Yeah. And certainly, you know, there's a little bit of an illusion, I think, of inefficacy on the part of people making arguments because you don't really see the thousands of people listening to for, for this podcast episode silently, quietly changing their minds in the privacy of their own home and not posting about it what you see as a public person on Twitter is, is what people are willing to put out publicly. Yeah. And it was the same for me, I guess. Like I've been exposed to atheist arguments for years and it never, but it it all built up in the background. And then eventually I lost my faith. Like all of them were really important. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you are right. Yeah. I guess not that easy, but it does take like a lot of iteration. And for whatever reason, you happen to be the kind of person that found that they could leave their community right? Leave everyone that they knew, right? Some people dispositionally can't do that. And so make compromises on on their beliefs. And and that's exactly the same with, with wokeness. Yeah. It's, it's a communal thing. You're, you're trapped in the community. Yeah. And so thus trapped in their beliefs. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of my questions for you now. I would love to have you back at some point in the future, but this was an excellent conversation. One of my favorites. And um, before I let you go, can you point people to wherever you want them to find your work or, or your Twitter oh. handle and so forth? Yeah. First off, thank you very much. This was really nice. You're very good at articulating positions, which is nice. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Are my you calling me articulate? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't take it the wrong way. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, my blog is knowingless.com at K-N-O-W, knowingless. And then um, I'm on Twitter at Ayla Girl, A-E-L-L-A underscore girl. And I mean, Google will do the rest, really. All right. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, thank you.